This is a crowd podcast. In September 2020, the Estonia case was turned on its head when some shocking new evidence was revealed. It was the most significant finding in years, possibly the most important in the history of the investigation. In this episode, we're going to hear from the people who made this amazing discovery. This is the secret history of the Estonia with me, Stephen Davis. Before we jump into this new development, let's just recap on what we know and what we think we know. The official report, which was widely criticised, came out in 1997. It listed a range of factors that it claimed led to the sinking, most of which centred around mechanical and design flaws of the bow visor, the part of the front of the ship that allows cars on and off. The report stated that the locking devices of the bow visor failed after being battered by heavy waves. Eventually the bow visor was torn off completely, pulling open the ramp and flooding the car deck. The ship then developed a heavy list, with water flooding the other decks. Remember, this all took place within around 45 minutes. But many people were highly sceptical of this explanation, not least because water in the car deck shouldn't cause the ferry to sink so quickly. We heard how former MP Lars Ångström called this report a political compromise. I got just by accident some uh, documents in my hands with a really heavy criticism against the investigation. And I realized that this investigation was one of the most heavy criticized investigations in history. The official report did not account for what those who were rescued actually saw and heard. Survivor Anders Eriksson told us how the timeline in the report didn't match the timeline he and other survivors remembered. It's hard to understand how this could happen. Confirming the timeline of the sinking would seem to be a pretty important part of any investigation. But remember that we heard from Margus Kerm, the former state prosecutor for the country of Estonia, how the interviews with survivors were done in an ad hoc manner often in airports in the immediate aftermath of the disaster. Here's Margus. What is lacking is a real structural interview of every single uh, survivor. What we know about uh, the survivors' experiences is uh, is a very eclectic bunch of uh, information. So the final report that was meant to answer all the questions about why the Estonia sank just opened up more questions. We then have the evidence from eccentric millionaire Greg Bemis. He financed a dive down to the wreck and got harassed by the Swedish Navy in the process. But he did manage to gather some metal from the wreck that when analysed showed evidence of an explosion. It's not really clear why this didn't get more media coverage at the time. The claims were refuted by other experts and the story faded away. Then came the smuggling bombshell, when a whistleblower came forward to reveal that the Estonia had been used to smuggle military electronics just weeks before the sinking. This tallied with what sources had told me when I started digging into the story. But the inquiry that was launched to look into this 
did nothing more than confirm the whistleblower's claims. It had such a limited frame of reference that it didn't reveal anything more. And then in the last episode, we heard from the forensic naval architect, Dr. Yashinovsky, that it would have been possible to raise the wreck, and that this is what he's recommended for years. That's where the state of the art in, in terms of evidence collection uh, would be. That state of the art has not been applied to Estonia as of yet. Margus Kerm told us that after his extensive review of all the evidence, all he can say for sure is that nobody knows what happened to the Estonia. After those uh, four years, that was my uh, understanding that we, we don't actually know why the ship sunk at night. But then, in September 2020, came this. New information about a large hole in the hull of the ferry Estonia, which sank in the Baltic Sea en route to Stockholm 26 years ago today, has been revealed in a new documentary. According to the film images in the documentary, which were taken by a dive robot, the hole is four meters high and has previously been partially hidden on the seabed. Truly a game-changing moment. The team behind it are a group of Norwegian and Swedish documentary filmmakers. They've dedicated many years to this story, and I actually helped them out with part of their investigation. Let's hear now from Henrik Evertsen and Bendik Mondal, who produced Estonia, the discovery that changes everything, with clips courtesy of Discovery+. Plus. Here's Bendik. This is a huge uh, trauma for Sweden, for Estonia, all the affected countries. So it's really a, a subject that needs to be handled with utmost respect and uh, diligence. But we really wanted to uh, really investigate it thoroughly and see what we could do to kind of move the case forward. So there was extensive, extensive research, extensive research conversation with the survivors, uh, next of kin, also the organization that represents the bereaved. It was very important for us to get them on board with the project. So um, from there, we just wanted to kind of look at every angle because we knew that if we are going to make this new project, it needs to bring something new to the table to move the case forward because it has been such a stalemate in this story for so many years. What we found is that parts of the ship were not properly investigated in the 90s. So what we decided to do was to go out, assemble a team, to go out uh, and dive with an ROV down to the wreck to see what we could find on these unsurveyed parts of the wreck. Here's Henrik. It was very complicated because of the jurisdictions and, and law surrounding the, the wreck, especially for me as a Swede, is forbidden to dive in the area. Remember all that stuff about the law of the sea and the treaty that banned dives to the wreck? Well, here's why it was important to go into all that. Back to Henrik. So we we chose to, to go by a German-flagged vessel, uh, Fritz Reuter. It was an old vessel from uh, Eastern Germany. So we started out from Rostock in Germany and um, went up to the wreck. It was like a two and a half days journey, I think. And it was very stormy on the way up. I remember everybody was seasick and so on. When we were on the Baltic Sea, the first thing that happened, because we were in, in Swedish waters on the way up to the wreck, and then um, we were spotted by a Coast Guard airplane. And it was like uh, when you have seen uh, seagulls uh, when they're trying to attack you, they are 
doing this dive against you uh, and they were doing that maneuver and so we understood quite early okay uh, the authorities are watching this when we came to the position we saw that a big ship was turning up on the horizon and we we looked upon the radar screens and it didn't show up so we were restarting the radar and so on but we realized that okay those guys doesn't have the their transponders on so they are not showing up on the radar screen and the only vessels that don't need to have the transponders on are warships and uh, coast guards ships and police force it seems like uh, we have we have a law enforcement ship directly on the um, on our side on uh, Estonia wreck waiting for us when we came closer, we saw that this was the Finnish Coast Guard's biggest vessel, Turva, 114 meters long, I believe, and they were placed on the position. Turva, 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 this is motorship. It's Reuter. It's Reuter, this is Turva replying. I have a question to ask you. Do you want to maintain the position, or you can move away? So we started out to to try to talk to them, try to find out how should we behave to each other here out on the sea. Yes, uh, I see you are approaching our location. Uh, what are your intentions? We are a documentary team that uh, do a documentary film about the Estonia disaster. Yes, I understand. Is your intention to do some underwater operations? Yes. Um, and um, after a discussion, they uh, um, actually moved, so they g gave us access to the wreck. To do this kind of operations, you need to physically uh, mark on the sea surface where the vessel is located, and by that you're using a shot line, it's called. Then you can go down with this diving drone called an RV, remotely operated vehicle. For us it was a very small kind of thing and we had also a GoPro camera on, an action camera that everybody can buy. So this was not any fancy equipment or anything like that. And when we actually came down to the wreck, we see that the marking are located between the bow thrusters, so we immediately knew where we were on the wreck. And then you can decide if you want to go on the port side on the, or on the starboard side, and we decided to go on the starboard side immediately when we had the, the RV down in the water. We went down to the wreck and it was wonderful visibility uh, down there. And um, we started out to investigate the, the starboard side uh, quite immediately because we thought perhaps this is the only chance we have. And after 10 minutes, uh, we see this big hole on the starboard side. It is four meters high and 1.2 meters wide. We are, of course, surprised. This is not uh, mentioned in any report that there are huge uh, damages on the starboard side of the, the vessel. You know, it was an oh shit moment, uh, to, to say it uh, at least. And when it was out, 
It was worldwide headlines. Everything went a bit crazy. Tell me about that. Yeah, it was uh, also, also an extraordinary moment in this process. Me and Henrik, we traveled to Stockholm for the launch of the series. I remember us taking the taxi out to the main news station in Sweden because Henrik was to appear on the morning show. And when that broadcast was done, everything was out there. And we were getting calls from all over the world, the New York Times, the Spiegel, Le Monde, all these big news organizations. And we were, I remember just walking through the newsroom of this uh, broadcaster in Sweden. They were shouting to each other. It was all over the screens, our findings, the whole, the clip from the series. So I don't think I will ever be part of something like that again. And we stayed in Stockholm for one week and the phone uh, kept ringing the whole week. So it was extraordinary, but it was, uh, of course, a big relief for us that so many people found this interesting and it really got the traction it deserved. And also uh, this put immense pressure on the Swedish government. And almost the same day, uh, the heads of state of the involved countries were out commenting on the matter, which they had not done for almost decades. So it was a big relief for us to see that it was put on the agenda, both politically and in the media from the start. As a Swedish citizen, Henrik was putting himself at risk of a two-year prison sentence by being involved with the dive to the wreck. And sure enough, he has indeed been prosecuted by his government for his part in the expedition. I asked him if he thought at the time that he'd end up in court over it. Yeah, when we arrived in the port, um German police were waiting there and they were doing a raid in the vessel we had. So uh, we understood that this will be perhaps legal consequences of this. When did you first hear that you were going to be prosecuted in Sweden? The Swedish police called me and it was a special brand of the Swedish police called uh, like uh, the police force of international crime. Uh, and they um, wanted to interrogate me in Stockholm. So I said that I want a lawyer and everything. So it started with that. And I also asked the police if I should take my toothbrush with me. And he said that I probably should. Didn't you say to them, were you tempted to say to them, listen, guys, I'm a journalist doing my job. I'm not an international criminal. Uh, yeah, I said something like that, uh, or more or less, uh, I don't want to comment on that and so on. Uh, because uh, I need to protect my sources and uh, my journalistic information, of course. Now, two years later, and I think three court cases, they're still trying to prosecute you, aren't they? Yeah, uh, this is an ongoing uh, case now, and it has turned out to, because we were acquitted in the first round, and then we got a sentence in the third round, and so on. So, so it, this will be, uh, this will walk through the whole law system in Sweden, I think. Why do they think, I mean, the, the, the stuff that you reported on is out, it's in the public eye. You've you've done your job as a journalist. Why do you think your government is still so determined to prosecute you? Well, that's a good question, Stephen. And I think, um, of course, the Estonia wreck is uh, resting in quite shallow waters. Now, when the Swedish government has decided to, to leave all the uh, belongings and uh, also the, the dead bodies uh, out there, uh, they need to protect the wreck from... Uh, divers and uh, expeditions and so on but this was something else and that's something that we are pushing a lot we didn't do this uh, for any other reason than to to understand the, the sinking of uh, the estonia and that's something i think that could also help the, the relatives in understanding this we are tired of speculation so we want facts instead 
Do you want more crowd podcasts? Let me tell you about the Crowd Stories channel. It's where you can find all of Crowd's documentaries. In one place. And for just £1 a week, they're ad-free. Addictive documentaries like American Vigilante. I'm a monster hunter. It's what I do. And Murder in House 2. I know you know what happened. You want to keep it to yourself? You suit yourself. You're going down. You can binge our groundbreaking audio fiction series, Eliza, a robot story. I have 302 minutes, 34 seconds, and two milliseconds to tell this story. And immerse yourself in the stories of death of a rock star. Just search for Crowd Stories on Apple Podcasts. And hit the subscribe button. See you there. Welcome back to the secret history of the Estonia. Henrik's discovery of the hole in the hull caused political and media shockwaves throughout the world. Two new investigations were launched, and the authorities had to amend the legislation banning dives to the wreck. One of the new investigations is a joint state inquiry by the Swedish, Estonian and Finnish authorities. The other is a private endeavour, led by Marcus Kerm, alongside Dr Yashinovsky. This investigation is endorsed by victims and next-of-kin groups. When I met Margus Kerman Tallinn, I asked him about his main aims. The main objective was uh, to scan the shipwreck using this uh, photogrammetric uh, technology so that we can uh, construct uh, the 3D model of the shipwreck in a seabed. And uh, we have the 3D model of the, of the shipwreck. It's not, uh, it's not complete. There are some parts uh, missing, but most of the, uh, let's say, of the ship, which is uh, important, the, the starboard side is well covered, and also the, the buoy area, uh, where the ramp is, and, uh, is, is well covered. So we, we have a, a good model which enables to understand where those damages are, how big they are, what is the shape of those damages. Margus's team sent a remote-operated vehicle, essentially an underwater robot, down to the wreck. In particular, this ROV was able to get inside the car deck to inspect an area called the central casing. I think the ROV was um, about 70 metres inside the car deck and was able to inspect this central casing, which is a very important uh, part of the ship, uh, because uh, the passengers' doors and elevators uh, in this central casing are claimed to be the openings where the water uh, flowed down to the compartments below the car deck. This is a crucial area to explore because of what the official report said, or failed to say. Some of the stuff is quite complex, but stick with us. There is no explanation whatsoever in this report how the water entered to the compartments below the car deck. How this uh, watertight uh, part of the ship were filled with water. There is no explanation whatsoever. It's unbelievable, but it is so. There is just uh, two sentences saying that uh, the water went down from above. The research made um, from 2005 to 2008 uh, suggested 
that uh, the water uh, flowed uh, down through ventilation ducts and the central casing. And uh, this was possible because these uh, passenger doors simply collapsed due to the water pressure. And um, what we discovered during our expedition last autumn was that at least two of those uh, passengers' doors are closed and intact. They are in their original position. Okay, so this is a really important new finding. Previous theories suggested that the doors in the central casing area collapsed and that this would explain how the water flooded below the car deck. But Margus found that at least two of these doors were shut. This seriously challenges this theory about how the ship sank. Margus went on to give some more detail about the ROV expedition. We were able to uh, inspect only the starboard side of the central casing and only the front part. We were not able to move backwards uh, because it was blocked by uh, debris. But at least we, um, let's say, we we disproved the fact that all the doors uh, collapsed, which was uh, before taken as uh, as self-evident. So a key finding of the official inquiry is called into question by what you found. Yeah. It's quite staggering to me. I mean, given, as you said, that the fact that water is under the car deck of a, of a watertight ferry, an official inquiry lasting years devotes two sentences to how the water got there. Yeah, that's, that's uh, at least surprising, or let's say it's not acceptable. It's not acceptable. This is not, uh, let's say, uh, uh, the ship uh, does not sink because the water in a car deck. The ship cannot uh, sink without the water also in the, the bottom of the, of the ship. And that was a, a, a very, very important uh, shortcoming of the official investigation. Okay, so we've now got ROV footage from Henrik showing a hole in the hull and footage from Margus that shows at least two of the doors in the central casing are in fact closed. To me, it feels like the official report from 1997 is being ripped apart. But I wanted to ask Dr. Yashinovsky about these new discoveries. Now, I understand that you um, are in the middle of a very complicated investigation and, and you can't um, tell us your conclusions, which is, of course, completely fine. I want to just take you through a few specific things and just get your opinion as an expert as of today on the potential significance of them. So firstly, obviously, the discovery of a hole in the side was unexpected, um, did not form part of the original inquiry's findings, was a shock. Um, That's a very significant finding, isn't it? It is absolutely significant. In accident like this, hull bridge is fundamental. Just to interject briefly here, the phrase that he's using is hull bridge. Because the ship sank, so the water entered the hull. So any hull bridge immediately uh, is a question mark uh, as to whether that was not the reason for the ship to sink. And we need to re-examine uh, the entire accident. 
And w- would it be fair to say that based on what we know now, the original investigation, the Joint Accident Commission investigation was flawed, wasn't it? I mean, completely flawed. I think that I would refrain from confirming or, or denying any flaw or lack thereof. I did mention earlier that every investigation suffers from uncertainties simply because you cannot go back in time and see exactly what, how and when uh, happened. So I think what would be fair to say, in all honesty, is that the the evidence that was uh, available to the Commission was deprived of this new evidence. So it was limited. You know, I'll just reiterate that even today uh, we, we are suffering from uh, from those limits uh, simply because there is evidence that is possible to, to be retrieved and yet it isn't being retrieved. Uh, there is simply no will to do so. When we interviewed Margus Kerm in Tallinn, he uh, specifically mentioned the robot footage of the car deck and the fact that you could see at least two of the doors were still closed and that he wasn't uh, trying to come to a conclusion, but he was suggesting that this cast some doubt on the explanation of why the water got under the car deck. Do you think uh, that footage, is that a key part of your investigation? Is that significant? So I will just reiterate what I uh, uh, mentioned earlier. Uh, there is no more or less significant you know, evidence. All of the evidence has to be uh, looked at holistically. So the doors in the car deck, obviously just like all the other doors on the ship, uh, is important part of the evidence that needs to be taken into account. So it's not an end of the story. It's again another piece of evidence that takes us a step further from where we were before that survey. And that just, uh, if I may uh, go back to what we said earlier, you know, it just shows that the information we had up until this point was incomplete. And even today, it remains incomplete. What we have today is more than what we had yesterday. But there is a still a scope of the evidence that, that is there, 80 meters underwater, that uh, possibly could change the course of our conclusions in any which way. So obviously he isn't going to get drawn on the significance of these findings. I understand that. He's in the middle of an active investigation and needs to make sure he assesses all the evidence together. And, as he said earlier, the best way to do this would be to raise the ship. But it seems to me that these new pieces of evidence are really important. We now have footage that undermines something that's been taken as self-evident for years – that the doors in the central casing collapsed, allowing water to flood under the car deck, sinking the ship. And there's another piece of evidence that recently came to light. It shows that millionaire ship explorer Greg Bemis may have been on to something after all. I'm going to bring in former MP Lars Ångström here. He recently travelled to the Swedish naval base where the Estonia's bow visor is held. It was recovered from the seabed during the early investigation. Over a couple of separate visits, his research group examined the bow visor in detail. 
The visor is very big, it's uh, like eight meters up to the top of it. And the first time we had uh, drones and uh, were not satisfied with the material, so we went there a second time with the skylift, which meant that we could get very close to the all parts of the visor and we could get up very close to the roof where the bottom of the visor is and the bottom plate of the visor that was supposed to have been hitting the forepeak deck uh, very hard and got damaged. And when we came up uh, with the sky lift and saw this bottom plate for the first time, we couldn't believe our eyes because there was not a single mark from a mechanical hit. If you imagine that the 64-ton heavy visor is hitting a four-peak deck with a sharp edges and a small pyramid, you would imagine that you could see at least one, <laughs> one mechanical mark of some kind. But there was no mechanical marks whatsoever. It was very soft uh, deformation. And uh, we realized that this could not have been caused by the visor hitting the four-pick deck. It must have been caused by something else. And the most likely thing is that a detonation has occurred. So we decided to... And just before we leave that, so that, that crucial official description about the visor, and which of course, according to the official explanation, is the cause of the disaster, at the moment you saw the visor, you realised this couldn't be right. Yeah, when we saw the bottom plate yes. of the visor. And we learned that uh, in Finland in 1994, there was pieces of this bottom plate of the visor that was cut off to be analysed. Uh, and all those different parts, it was quite a lot of parts that was cut off. They, they, they put them in, in big boxes and they were shipped to Sweden in 1995 or 1996 or something like that. And they have been stored since then down in Karlskrona in south of Sweden in a big storage. And we went down there and, and found all these parts. Uh, they were just laying in these big containers. And from the, all the material that we had from visiting the visor, we could identify all, almost all parts where they had been placed on the visor. And we found the, the ones in the very front that we believe that if there has been a detonation, it must have been placed here. So, after collecting these parts that were just being stored in containers in Finland, Lars asked his reference group about what to do next how best to have them analysed. Remarkably, he was advised by the former general director for the Swedish National Audit Office not to leave these parts with any Swedish institutions. So we took it out of Sweden and went to Norway. And uh, to make a long story short, um, the professor found changes in the material that proved the material to have been heated up to at least 1,200 degrees Celsius. And that's a temperature that you cannot achieve by mechanical <laughs> hits the visor hitting the four-peak deck. It must have been caused by something else. And she also concluded that this um, piece that she was investigating, uh, it was folded very strong and uh, without any mechanical uh, marks on it. So uh, her conclusion was that this has been caused by a very strong pressure wave. 
and of course, the, as a scientist, she do not say that this has been all caused by a detonation, because you cannot prove that it is a detonation, but if you, as uh, not a scientist, uh, try to make a conclusion on, okay, what has caused this temperature of uh, 1200 degrees, what has caused this uh, pressure wave, there is no other explanation than, than a detonation. I, I was going to say, the, the metal ferry going through the sea doesn't suddenly heat up to 1,200 degrees. No. When you got this finding, did you think, now I'm, I'm, I'm getting close to the truth? No, not getting close to the truth. But uh, we, by this, can prove that the Jike scenario is not correct. Uh, we still do not know if this detonation has occurred up on the surface before the, the, the sinking or if it has been caused when the Estonia has been at the bottom of the sea. And just to go back, because as I said, as an outsider, some of this stuff is, is pretty amazing. You, you have all these bits of the visor literally sort of lying around somewhere in southern Sweden. Why wouldn't an official inquiry analyze that? That's a very good, very good question. It's almost as if they didn't get them analyzed because they didn't want the answer. Yeah, at least they, they made the wrong analysis. If they would have been interested in being sure if there had been a detonation or not, they should have done a metallurgical analysis as we have done now. But they didn't do any. They did not do that. Now, as we were finishing this episode, we heard back from the Swedish Accident Investigation Authority. We'd reached out to ask about their current inquiry and when their conclusions might be made public. Jonas Beckstrand, chair of the investigations, agreed to speak with me about this. It was a really interesting conversation. I started by asking him what the purpose of the new investigation is and what he's hoping to achieve. The starboard side of the vessel have been lying down towards the sea bottom and uh, it appeared in the documentary that was broadcasted in 2020 that the ship has twisted a bit, some 13 or 14 degrees, and that makes it possible to see the starboard side. So that side of the vessel has never been examined actually. And since there was also some damage on that side uh, shown in the documentary, we thought that it would be a good thing to investigate that in order to see if those holes in the side has occurred uh, before the sinking or after the sinking, because it made, makes uh, a huge difference. Absolutely. Now, have you reached a conclusion? We have not formally reached a conclusion yet. We have not stated a conclusion in any report yet, but we have been quite open with our findings and what we have done. And we have had media with us uh, during the expeditions we have done uh, this summer and last summer. So I could absolutely say that it's very likely that the damage on the starboard side occurred when the vessel hit the sea bottom. We also know from last summer when Stockholm University uh, took part in the, uh, in the expedition that there is a ridge of bedrock going under the ship, midships, 
So uh, it's even if it's soft clay, uh, the stern area and that bow area, in the midships there's a ridge of bedrock and quite hard material that the ship has hit when it landed on the sea bottom. Are you doing any metal analysis on uh, on the new hull, on the edges of the new hull? No, we haven't done that uh, so far. We have made geological uh, examinations of what's on and under the sea bottom and we have made photographs of uh, the damages. Well, we have made photographs of as much as possible of, of the vessel. But are you going to analyse the metal? I'm not sure. That would, uh, that would mean that we will have to go down with divers and we will have to cut some steel out. Uh, I'm not sure if we're going to do that. Okay, just let me put a, a sort of, as it were, an oppositional point of view, uh, if, if you don't mind. It was said for a long time the seabed was soft and, and then suddenly um, an expedition finds a hole in the side where there isn't supposed to be one. And now it could be said that you're now trying to find an alternative explanation for the hole, i.e. that it hit rocks. Um, can you understand why people might be a little bit sceptical? Yes, I do. But uh, what you are saying is not correct. It has been known since geological surveys from Finland in 1995 that there is a ridge under the ship. It's not unknown. But when there were works, there were a, a decision by the government to cover the ship in order to protect it from looters. And that work was uh, uh, later on abandoned. But when they were doing that, there were large difficulties because there was so much soft clay at the stern area and the bow area. And that was widely known. And many people have reacted on that and saying it's only clay down there. And it's not. It has been clear since 1995 there's a ridge under the ship. And now we have, with better techniques, we have let Stockholm University examine that. And they made a report last year about that. And if some people, as you know, um, uh, have a theory that there was... Uh, some kind of explosion. Do, do you not think in those circumstances to clear up things once and for all you should be analysing the metal? There are no signs of explosion when you look at the uh, starboard side and you look at uh, uh, how uh, the damage looks. There have been some speculation about explosions uh, on the four-peak deck uh, where the bow visor was. Um, and, and there has been examinations of that. Well, first we can say that there were actually tests for uh, explosive already in 1994 that were negative. Um, a part of, of the visor has been um, analyzed by a Norwegian professor uh, well, last year. And it, it shows signs of, of heating, which is consistent with welding, but not with the explosion. It's very hard to prove what has not happened. Are you confident on what you know now that there is a plausible explanation as to why the Estonia sunk in 45 minutes? Yes and no. Um, I think that we can uh, quite clearly say from 
this year's and, and last year's expedition that uh, the damage on the starboard side is likely to have been caused by the collision with the sea bottom. And we do not have any facts showing anything else than the technical explanation that was stated by JIKE, the 1994 uh, investigation team. When it comes to the reasons for the sinking, when you talk about the bow visor uh, falling off, taking with it uh, the ramp and the ship taking in water on car deck. But we do have some points to make when it comes to to the former investigation. Not everything was perfect. The sinking event could have been described in a more detailed way. And we will probably have some comments on the report. And we can also say that when you consider the regulations today that were not in place uh, back then, it's totally different. Um, a investigation team like the one 1994 would not be allowed to, to be put together today. So many things have happened. But when it comes to the technical explanation of the JIKE report, we do not see any facts uh, contradicting that. Okay, because some very experienced and competent um, marine experts who are far from conspiracy theorists. In fact, when you talk to them, they're exceedingly cautious about all of their conclusions. It still raise doubts on the grounds that, you know, the Estonia sank so quickly and and it, it shouldn't have done. Yes, it sank quickly. And that's the reason why the sinking event should have been uh, more thoroughly investigated and explained. But very often people um, make comparisons with other accidents, for example, the uh, Jan Hevelius ferry, which is not a viable comparison because that ferry capsized and was then lying upside down for quite some time before it sank. But it had a whole hull. It didn't have any any openings. When it comes to Estonia, there was an opening for Kardec which is quite large so the ship took in a lot of water and and uh, I think that it would have been a good thing if it had been better explained in the former report how that water penetrated down under Kardec and and how the sinking event took place. So if I could just sum up your position as far as the investigation, just correct me if I'm getting it wrong, but you think that based on what you know now, and while there may have been some gaps in the original investigation, essentially you're, you're standing by those conclusions in the Jike report about why the Estonia sank. And, and nothing you've learned since has changed your mind. Yeah, when it comes to the technical explanation concerning the bow visor and, and the ramp, yes, that's right. And I also would like to, to stress that when we have done these expeditions this summer and last summer, we have also been accompanied by representatives of, of survivors and of media. So we have had a lot of people there being able to scrutinize what we are actually doing and what we are seeing there. Well, wouldn't you say, looking at it in retrospect, that all of these issues 
could have been dealt with a long, long time ago if your government had done what it originally said it would and brought the ferry to the surface. Yeah, um, probably. Um, I think it's it's important to separate uh, the former investigation from the political handling. The accident was quite soon uh, lifted to a political level and it's fairly easy to say today that the, the state crisis management, it was a catastrophe, uh, promising to raise the vessel and then changing the mind and leaving it there and then taking decisions to cover the wreck and then taking decisions not to cover the wreck. It was not the best kind of crisis management you could have and um, that is definitely a failure of the state, I think. In the interview, he's stating as fact two important things. That there were rocks on the seabed, which caused the hole, and that there was no evidence of an explosion. But in fact, there is evidence of an explosion from outside experts, and there was evidence that the seabed is in fact soft. I felt the interview left me with more questions than answers. In the next and final episode of The Secret History of the Estonia, we're going to question everything we've learned. We're going to look at all the major theories, and we're going to hear about the ongoing impact on the lives of those caught up in this disaster. I think that the Swedish governments should now, almost 30 years later, say that they did it terribly wrong, and they should ask us for forgiveness. If possible, I would like my mother to come back home, to take the bodies from the ship. I would like to know what happened, and I would like her to come home so I can have a closure. The Secret History of the Estonia is a Crowd Network original. It's presented by me, Stephen Davis, and produced by Samantha Syke. Mixing and sound design is by Rory Auskari. The music we use is from our partners, BMG Production Music. To listen to the entire series ad-free and for exclusive bonus episodes, subscribe to the Crowd Stories channel on the Apple Podcasts app. You can also listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Additional material across the series courtesy of Discovery Plus, Getty and Sverge Radio. If you haven't already, take a listen to the first Secret History series, The Secret History of Flight 149. It's the tale behind how a passenger plane got caught in a war zone, leaving hundreds of people at the mercy of Saddam Hussein. Hear from the human shields who were held hostage in Kuwait, and from those who spent years searching for the truth. Find the secret history of Flight 149 on this feed. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network, a place where you belong.